reading from the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the, this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate breast breast of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Here's a curious thing. Why is it that Christians don't wear special religious clothing? Ever wonder about that? Pretty much every other faith has sort of a special clothing piece that they might wear. Certainly Christians, you know, they dangle crosses around their neck. Maybe certain Christian priests or nuns might wear particular symbolic uh, pieces of clothing. But for the ordinary Christian, we don't have a special wardrobe to wear. Other religions do, and often, as we know in our culture, those are flashpoints uh, in our cultural conversation here in Canada. Muslim women wear uh, a hijab, sometimes a niqab, not uncommon here in Canada. Observant Jews wear a kippah, uh, the, the skull cap, or, or Orthodox Jewish men will wear this four-cornered garment with, with frills on them, fringes. Mormon men wear temple garments under their regular clothes. Sikhs will wear a turban, carry a dagger. Um, and these clothing items have some profound connections to the, their faith identity. Uh, they can't imagine living without those wardrobe pieces. Uh, they're pretty much tied up to their expression of faith. But Christians don't have an identifiable wardrobe um, or accessory. For Christians, that's in that matter of the non-essentials. Why is that? For Christians, the Christian's wardrobe is not any item of clothing. It's the person of Jesus Christ. What is essential 
for the Christian to put on is the life of Jesus Christ, the character of Jesus Christ that gets then embodied in our daily lives and practices. And in a variety of different places, Scripture uses that image of a wardrobe of clothes to describe how we put on Jesus Christ in our lives. And here, in this context of a spiritual battle, Paul adapts that wardrobe metaphor and now calls us to put on the full armor of God. Paul wraps up this whole letter of Ephesians with this, with this clarion call and in a very practical way. He's been describing all that God has done for us in, and provided for us in Jesus Christ, how we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, how we are chosen, we are adopted as part of God's family, how God has made known to us the mystery of the ages of his will, how God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him how he has destroyed the dividing wall, how he has brought all of us near in Christ. And now, after laying out all this blessing, all this goodness that God has done for us in Christ, now the practical need for us is to take all that God has done for us and put it on, wear it, live it out, to put on the full armor of God. In the beginning, when you become a Christian, um, we receive Christ, we receive all these blessings, all these privileges, all this power that's available to us, all these benefits. And the sense is that it's all yours. The moment you become a Christian, you receive it all. But there's another sense in which you, you need to actively put it on. It's all yours, but... You spend a life growing in grace, the process of of, of placing each piece of this spiritual armor, understanding what it is, putting it around you, putting it on you. So to put on the armor of God means to take on ourselves the life of Jesus Christ, all the privileges of the gospel, all the benefits of Jesus Christ, and begin to then use them in our life to create a new way of seeing life, a new way of understanding the world around us, a new sort of habituated way of of living, of practicing, of of thinking, of understanding the world. We're not always accustomed to that. We're we're trained, we're discipled in a lot of other ways by our world, but, but Putting on the full armor, putting on Jesus Christ is a way for us to to see the whole of life through Jesus. And so Paul is calling us through this clothing, this uh, armor metaphor, to live fully into Jesus Christ. And he's really drawing actually on an Old Testament metaphor of God, um, an Old Testament description of God as a warrior. In Isaiah 11, verse 5, we read about the Messiah, how the Messiah um, has the righteousness will be his belt and how faithfulness will be a sash around his waist. And later in Isaiah 59, we read about how God puts on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. So Paul is drawing on these Old Testament images and now um, putting them into this wardrobe metaphor of how we put on Christ. And he's reminding us, Setting in this context of the battle, remember, God is waging this war on the powers and the principalities of this world. We've looked at that a couple of weeks ago, how there's more to reality than our philosophies have dreamt up. Um, There is the reality of powers and principalities, and God is waging a war, and God now calls the church to step into that role. God conscripts the church in that war.
And this is a really important piece for us to remember, how it is a call for the church, not any one individual, but us as a community. Every you in this passage is a plural, all of you. It is, this battle is engaged as a whole community, as a church. If, if we try it on ourselves, by ourselves, we're toast. We do this together. And so as we look at each piece of spiritual armor that we're given to us, we're going to note both an individual application, but also a communal way we practice this. But the overall aim of this is simply to be strong in the Lord. This is the call. This is not about, Paul's reminding you, it's not about our power. It's not about our skills or strength or willpower. We're not strong enough in ourselves to, to deal with this battle. Remember what Jesus said, John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing, which is pretty humbling. We sort of like to think we're pretty well put together. Jesus, don't you know? I mean, I went to university. Um, I'm pretty well trained. No, he says, no, you know what? Apart from me, you, you can't do anything. And so Paul calls this the armor of God. This is God's character and God's life that we are putting on. And so be strong in the Lord. And our call in this is to take our stand. That word is repeated several times. To take your stand. To stand in the place that Jesus has already won. To hold the ground that is already taken by Jesus Christ. That's the place we stand. But how? Let's walk through the spiritual armor. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. The belt of truth. The belt of truth, interestingly, is different than all the rest of the armor that is listed here. The belt, some translations put it as a girdle. I don't like that translation very much. (laughs) The belt of truth is actually not a piece of armor. You didn't defend yourself with the belt of truth. You didn't attack with it. What is it? The belt of truth. The belt of truth, rather than being a piece of armor, is sort of the foundation of it all. The reason you needed a belt is because a Roman soldier would wear sort of a tunic. It's sort of like a kilt for all of us Scottish people here. Um, This long sort of robe, and, and the only way you could really use your armor is the only way you could get ready for action to gird up the loins is to hike up your kilt and strap your belt around you. Paul's saying, we're not going to be able to stand in this battle unless we buckle the belt of truth around us. What does he mean by truth? Is it the truth of God revealed in the gospel? The truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ is God's clearest revelation, that he is the Savior and Lord of the world? What Paul has been declaring through those first three chapters of Ephesians? Or does he mean living the truth, doing the truth? You know, what Paul has unpacked in the last three chapters of Ephesians. And it's got to be both, doesn't it? It's, it's truth as character, our lives, and truth as, as conviction that's been revealed to us. We stand strong when we are gripped by truth. And interesting that the phrase, it's the verb is putting on truth. It's, it's an active sort of thing. It is working truth into your life, into the inner parts of your life. It's not merely assenting to a body of beliefs, but it's letting those beliefs hold you, grip you, 
Letting the truth of God come into your life. It's letting Jesus shape your vision for your life. It's seeing life through Jesus. The truth of the gospel tells us that we have been adopted in love by God as his children, that we are forgiven, completely forgiven through Jesus' sacrifice and death, that we have been made holy and blameless. This is the truth the gospel declares to us. Is that truth getting deep inside you? Is that truth changing your identity, how you understand yourself? Are you letting the truth of that gospel get worked into daily relationships, how you understand others around you? Just is it, is it encompassing your whole life the way a belt sort of encompasses a person? Buckle the belt of truth and then stand firm with the breastplate of righteousness in place. The purpose of this breastplate was to sort of guard the vital organs. You can lose a limb in a battle and still function. I mean, yeah, it hurt. But you can still function. If you have an organ pierced, a lung, a heart, well, game over in short order. And so the breastplate, both worn on back and front, guarded those vital organs, protected. Um, and, and again, we stand as a community and as individuals when we put on righteousness. But again, what is righteousness? It's one of those you know, million-dollar theological words, biblical words that we hear and we sometimes wonder, huh, what does it really mean? We're a little fuzzy on. So what is it? it righteousness is is approval of God, your, your approved right standing with God. Even though the, we ourselves are not righteous, God declares us as righteous through Jesus Christ. And communally, it also has a meaning. It means right living with others, just living with others, living God's way righteously, justly. So what guards us in this struggle we have against evil is that, um, is that we are made right with God through the work of Christ. And Paul's, the breastplate is Paul's way of talking about the fact that um, we all need to have this profound sense of approval or righteousness to cover our heart, our guts, our inside. We have to have some way of defending ourselves against accusation. Because when you fail, when people accuse you, when people reject you, how do you defend yourself? What is it that you throw up to defend yourself? What's your covering? How do you convince yourself that you're approved as a person? Often we, we do it in a lot of different ways. We say, well, I'm a good person. I'm a pretty moral person. I, I live a moral life or I'm good to people around me. Or look at what I've done in my career. I'm accomplished. That's, if you use those, that's, that's your breastplate. That's your covering. That's what you're using to somehow defend yourself, to, to seek, uh, to, to prove that you're acceptable, presentable, that the verdict on your life is a good one. The breastplate, the covering that protects the most vulnerable parts of who we are, your heart, your identity, how you see yourself in the world is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our enemy loves to accuse our conscience, to suggest that because of our sin, God's verdict on your life is one of rejection. How could he accept you? 
Look at what you've done. And our enemy loves to get us to to think that if only we can work hard enough, if we can somehow prove to God or others that we're pretty good people, we find that acceptance will be acceptable. The verdict on our life will be a good thing. Paul says, no, 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 put this breastplate of righteousness in place. Put God's verdict on your life firmly in place. Every day, start the day, put that in place to protect you. You need to announce to yourself the verdict of the gospel on your life. I am accepted by God through Jesus Christ, through the finished work of Christ. You need to say that to your heart. You know, to say what the Bible declares, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no accusation against you. If you're a Christian, and you you know, the devil just suggests this accusation all the time, right? You can confidently declare, when you hear that accusation in your heart, where it's presented, where it becomes perceptible to you, you you can say confidently, the verdict on my life has been passed already. It's done. The verdict on my life is that Jesus Christ has died for me. The righteous, for me the unrighteous. But on the basis of that, I am declared right with God. That is done. And because of that, you can stand poised, confident, bold. Because the judgment on your life is passed and that frees you to live a just life for others. This breastplate of righteousness is also justice, right lives, right relationships, living God's good order in the world. What guards us is having been made right with God through the work of Christ and then living that out, having new attitudes, new behaviors. We put that breastplate of righteousness on by practicing justice in a church so that we value and esteem all people, so that we operate not out of social hierarchies of of power or privilege, but we practice relationships in which all have honor and dignity. We seek God's way of justice and love and honor. But sometimes the breastplate cracks. You know that? Conscious, willful sin creates cracks in that breastplate. And to cover up that crack, Scripture tells us this confession. First John tells us, interestingly, that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to not only forgive our sins, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a cleansing offered through confession. And again, we've got to remember, think, think communally as we think through these things. This is spoken to a community as a whole. We need to realize that unconfessed sin creates cracks in the church's armor. One British theologian, David Watson, said, personal sin is never a private matter, which freaks me out a little bit. Doesn't it? It's like, like my junk affects you, and your junk affects all of us. Private sin is never a personal matter. The whole congregation of God's people can suffer because unconfessed sin gets festering in some corner of it. I I think we especially feel it when we come here for worship. You know, when there's particularly unconfessed sins of bitterness or suspicion or judgmentalism, that unconfessed stuff just affects a whole worship service. That's why every Sunday we take time to confess, to take the garbage out, to confess anything we know that's displeasing to God. 
and, and claim the cleansing power of Christ's sacrifice for us. Third, Paul talks about the gospel boots, fashioned footwear fit for a battle. He talks about with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now, those of you who do any hiking or those of you who just do a lot of walking in the city know footwear is really important. But what is he talking about here? Feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The footwear is not peace, but a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. But what does that mean? It's interesting, a word, it, it, it means sort of a nimbleness. It's a word you would use for a dancer, someone who's light on their feet, or an athlete, someone who's sure-fitted, uh, sure-footed. Uh, it's, it's the opposite of being sluggish or hesitant or being doubtful. It's, it's a quality of character. God has made peace with us through Jesus Christ. And when we're not at peace with God, we're, we're unstable. We lack that confidence or the, that, that traction in our life. But when we experience that peace, when we're stand, then we're standing on solid ground. You know, we can be hassled and harassed. We can be in the thick of things all around us, but we are not moved. That is the traction, the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And again, this is both individual and communal. When we have our firm footing in the peace of God, then we're able to step out with confidence. We're able to make for peace for others. Oh, that God's people would be peacemaking people in the city, in the world. Now Paul moves then on to another piece of armor, different sort of armor. He, uh, interesting, he talks about a piece of armor that's not attached to the body any longer, but one that you take up at certain times or moments. Um, these pieces were taken up, were used when the attack, when the battle was intense, when you're at the front lines of something. All of us are at the front lines somewhere in our life. Think about that for yourself. What is your front line? It's usually the place where you go out on a limb, where you take risks, where you might feel vulnerable, where you're doing something that you know is going to make a difference in your neighborhood, in your community, in your workplace. That's your front line. Paul says, take up your shield of faith. He's talking here about this, this long shield that a Roman soldier would, wear, would take up that usually protected the entire body, the whole person. It would protect from these incoming arrows that enemies would you know, soak in tar, light up, and fire off these projectiles. For the Christian, faith is what protects us in the heat of battle. In the battle, the enemy is always throwing these darts, these projectiles to puncture, to destroy our faith, arrows of doubt, projectiles of skepticism, of disobedience, of accusation, of anger, fear, lust. And what protects is faith. And faith, not, not as, you know, again, a body of beliefs, but faith is, is trust, is a, is a placing all your confidence, all your weight on God, trusting God. Because faith, it's actually a way of seeing what is often imperceptible. Because scripture says, we walk by faith, not by sight, right? So faith is a way of seeing God when it's very challenging to see him. It is trusting in the truth that God is present, that he is here. This is the shield. And again, this faith is both individual and communal. It's something we need to take up individually, but then it's also something we need to do together as a community, 
Roman soldiers were sometimes huddled together with these, with these shields, and it would provide this, this pretty impenetrable shield as a whole. And I wonder how much we might do that as a community. Because there are times, there are seasons when some of us feel like, I don't have faith. I can't see God anymore. Life is just too hard. The storms are just battling me too hard. And are those the times when we need to come along and say, you can't believe right now. Your faith is brittle, is frail. I get that. Let me share my faith with you. Let me encourage you with my faith. Somehow, let's have our faith shared with one another. It's a communal thing we need to do together. Scripture talks about how faith is actually a gift. Now, if it's a gift, and we're told that all spirit, we don't receive all spiritual gifts. So some of us have a gift of faith that we need to use in some capacity because others of us need it. But it also places those of us who are in that situation where we feel our faith frail or weak to, to humble ourselves and say, I'll accept your gift of faith for me. I'll accept your protection um, over my doubts with your faith an individual and it's a communal thing then there's the helmet of salvation helmet of course this this helmet of of strong metal that protected it's of salvation think of what salvation is salvation is every goodness of god that rights a wrong that flips evil for good it's all the good that god has done through jesus christ in the past in the present and in the future It is the ongoing work of salvation of God to renew everything that the curse of sin has touched and tainted. And we need to declare this to ourselves. In Jesus Christ, I have been saved. I'm being saved. And I, along with the whole creation, will be saved and fully renewed. Every fear, every violence, every disease and oppression, it is going to come to an end. So put on the helmet of salvation, the hope that God is in the business of making everything new, salvaging this whole messy world, cleaning it up, restoring it. Putting on that helmet of salvation is is learning to, to speak to our own hearts to say, you know what? God is not finished with me yet. God is not finished with this world yet. He is up to something beautiful and remarkable. We've got to learn to tell ourselves that truth, to exercise the hope of salvation. And to say it to others, too. Remember, communal peace again. And then this final piece of armor we're called to take up is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. All of, of all the armor, the sword is, is unique because it's got a dual function, a defensive function. You know, when the enemy attacks, you can use a sword to defend, but it's also an offensive weapon of attack. The sword repels and attacks the enemy. This is the word of God, the living word of God, the word Jesus speaks. Paul uses a specific phrase for word of God, and it's referring to a spoken word of God. Throughout the Bible, we see that when God speaks, something happens. Words have a performative quality to them. They inform, but they also perform something. Words and universes, worlds and universes get created when God has his say. Mountains shake when God speaks up. The earth quakes and opens up when God says a word. God's word is powerful. And this is our most powerful weapon in this battle we face. And when we speak God's word, something happens. 
Isaiah 54 talks about how God's word, as it goes out, it never comes back empty, but always accomplishes its purpose. The word of God, the scripture says, is living and active. It's able to break through lies that blind us. It's able to bring us into the freedom of the cross. So take up the sword of the spirit. Speak the word of God in this battle. Because when you do, something always happens. may not be able to see it right away, but something is happening. It's happening right now. As I speak these words of God, you are hearing the gospel But more than that, so are the powers and principalities of Toronto hearing the gospel. The rulers, the authorities that presume to have some rule over Toronto, they are hearing the news that Jesus Christ is Lord over this city. It happens in home churches, in offices. It happens around dinner tables when people open God's word, when you open God's book and you speak God's message Which is why one of the the most intense sites of battle in your life, I can guess, has to do with whether you're going to read your Bible or not. Right? Am I I just too busy? I don't have time today. Too distracted? That is one of the, the primary places our enemy is going to fight. And you thought it was just busyness. It, something else is going on. You, you, we just got to name it as that. Take up the sword of the Spirit. And then lastly, there's an environment in which this all happens. Paul says, pray in the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. Always keep on praying for all the saints. Prayer. And as again, as we pray, something happens. There's this beautiful picture in Revelation which shows us the reality of what happens when we pray. The prayers of the saints go up to God and all of heaven is silent and the prayers get returned to earth in the form of thunder reversed thunder Eugene Peterson called the prayers of the people the prayers of God's people are one of the driving forces of history and yet we're so tempted aren't we to quickly get up off our knees and get doing something to get busy. And there's a time for that, right? There's a time for action. Absolutely. But scripture shows us again and again that history belongs to the intercessors. And so when we pray, what we're doing is we're going over the heads of the powers and the principalities, and we're addressing the head of all things, the ruler of all things, Jesus Christ. And again, we're tempted, aren't we? To sort of skip out on our prayers, to get distracted. Anyone have a distracted prayer life? And again, you might think, that's just my busy schedule. Can I tell you, there just might be another reality operative there. There might be some forces distracting you from this vital work of prayer. So stop. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. Be strong in the Lord. Put on the full armor of God and just watch what happens. And what I'd like to do with you now is do some of that praying. Here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to speak the word of God relative to some of the powers operative in our city. We need to figure out how do we begin doing this as a church, addressing 
or praying about these powers and principalities. So I, I'm going to pray, and along with the way, I'm, I'm going to ask you, if you agree with those declarations, if you could then say audibly, out loud, yes, Lord. And then I'm going to lead you in a prayer, bringing these powers before the head, the ruler of all things, We'll do that around a couple of things. I'm going to leave a little time later on for you then to pray about things in your life, to bring whatever you sense about powers and principalities operative before God. And then after that, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together. Okay? Let's pray. In the strong name of Jesus, Father, we stand against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And together we declare that the powers, human and demonic, visible and invisible, that blind our city to the beauty and wonder of the gospel are accountable to Jesus Christ. And Lord, we declare that the powers, human and demonic, visible and invisible, that bind your church in fear to proclaiming the gospel, they too are accountable to Jesus Christ. We declare that these powers have no match for Jesus Christ, that he is more powerful and that he can set the captives free. Do you agree? And so, Lord, we bring these powers before you and we ask that you would break the grip of blindness, the hardness of heart towards the gospel. Too long, God, have people missed the peace and the joy of your kingdom. And so, Lord, we ask for you to open the eyes of people to see, to know Jesus Christ. We pray for a release of faith in Jesus Christ in our city. Do you agree? And Lord, we bring these powers that bully and silence your church from announcing the good news, the fear, the over-concern for reputation, the lack of concern for the spiritual flourishing of the city. Lord, we ask you to free your church from this evil, to release us for a warm and winsome witnesses that causes the city great joy. Do you agree? Today, this day in which we remember the resurrection of Jesus over all powers, we declare that the powers, human and demonic, visible and invisible, at work in illicit sexuality, pornography, and sex trafficking, they are accountable to Jesus Christ. We declare that Aphrodite is accountable to you, Jesus Christ. We declare that the powers are no match for Jesus, that he is more powerful, and that he can set the captives free. Do you agree, church? And so, Lord, we bring these powers before you and we ask that you break their grip on this city. We ask that you expose those who are doing this work, that you break the back of the whole industry and empire that lies behind this. We ask that you come to the rescue of those being used as objects of the forces of lust and power. So many of the girls and women who are caught in this. We ask that you come to the rescue of so many men who are buying into this evil. Do you agree, church? And Lord Jesus, we bring the whole of the internet. How crazy does that sound? But we're bringing the whole of the internet to your feet. And we ask that you break the back of the whole pornographic industry and set every captive or pornography free. Do you agree? 
Today, as we remember the resurrection of Jesus over all the powers, we declare that the powers, human and demonic, visible and invisible, of greed and consumerism, of mammon in our city, all are accountable to Jesus Christ. Father, we pray, we pray, we declare that the powers are no match for Jesus and that he is more powerful and that he could set the captives free. Do you agree? And so, Lord, we bring these powers before you and we ask that you break the grip of greed and mammon on this city. So many are lured by wealth and material gain and we're led to pursue a life that we cannot maintain an economy that isn't sustainable. So many people's lives are harried with busyness that comes from working so hard to achieve this life, Lord. We see the cost, broken relationships, people enslaved in poverty, so many with massive weights of debt in their lives. We see these powers at work in a housing crisis in our city where basic housing is unaffordable and out of reach for so many. Lord, we ask you to expose all the powers behind this, that you would break the back of these empires. We'd ask that you would come to rescue the poor, those whose dignity is diminished because of mammon. Do you agree, church? And now let's take a few moments by ourselves to declare and pray for those things relative to our own lives, close to our own hearts. Quietly pray, declare that Jesus is seated far above any rule or dominion and then bring those powers to his feet. Let's do that in quiet. And let us pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the power, the kingdom, and the glory forever. Amen.